fact, when we talk about this word redemption, it's a, it's a word that has a lot of theological weight. There's a lot of really big ideas attached to the word redemption. We might say it's this. Redemption is when God rescues his people from the binding power of sin and evil through Christ and for an eternal relationship with him. That's redemption. And so when we're looking at the book of Exodus, we're going to see a lot of times we're going to be, especially this morning, looking back to Genesis, but also looking forward to Jesus. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they're, they're known as the Pentateuch, which is just a fancy way of saying five books. They're also known as the Torah, which is the Hebrew way of saying the law. And they're really just one collection. Moses being the one who assembled all these things, who writes these things down, who's accredited for these things. Obviously in Genesis, all that took place in Genesis was before Moses was born. Much of what begins with Exodus is the story of how Moses came to be and became to be this one who's the deliverer of the nation of Israel. But, but all of this, these five books kind of have their peak, the mountaintop is actually Exodus 19. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But this book, this story is really about us understanding the God who redeems his people. It is about the, the story, about these, this people being delivered from a promised land. It is about uh, the law that God gives on that mountain of Sinai. But it's really just about the God who does those things. It's about the God who does those things. And so today we want to just kind of notice three Three things, really. We're going to kind of give an outline for the whole book of Exodus, but we really want to notice a couple things, even just about these list of names. Because this is the kind of thing where you come up to the scripture, you're like, oh, so exciting, a list of names. But they're actually really important. Because the, these names are people, real people, whom God has chosen. This is a God, I mean, a people God has chosen, a people chosen by God. Uh, look at verse 1 again. Notice it says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Now, before we talk about Israel and Jacob, we need to kind of know that this goes all the way back. When God begins to choose a people, it goes all the way back to a couple that was barren, Abram and Sarah. Genesis chapter 12, it should be on the screen. Listen. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is kind of an amazing thing. This is God, the, the, the creator God calling a man, Abram, who probably worshipped, like everyone else around him, many false gods. Some think he worshipped it because he was from a place called Ur. He might have worshipped a moon god. We don't know for sure. But he was, like the rest of the world, what we call polytheistic. It means they, they worshipped many gods, usually localized gods. But here, the true living God interrupts his life and says, I want to do something with you. I want to make you... A mighty nation, which is pretty hard to hear when you're barren, when you're an older couple that's never been able to have children. 
But God makes this promise, not just this time in Genesis 12, but you can read later on in Genesis 13, 16, Genesis 15, 15, Genesis 17, 26, Genesis 22, 17. Over and over and over and over again, God makes this promise, I'm going to take you and make you a mighty nation. And notice what he says. This mighty nation is going to be in you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God takes two people that have, their sin should have disqualified them. They worshiped other gods. God takes two people that their physical circumstances should have disqualified them. They couldn't have children. And he takes these two people and he says, I'm going to bless you to the point that you're a blessing to every other nation. That's amazing to think about, isn't it? This is where the story of Exodus begins way back when God begins to choose a people for himself. But the, the story continues through one troubled man. Abraham gives birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth to Jacob. And when you see here in verse 1, it says the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Israel and Jacob are not two people, but one. Listen to this. Genesis 35. God appeared to Jacob again. And when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called him his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful, multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, that's granddad and dad, I get, will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham didn't see it fully come to pass, but he did see this chosen son in Isaac. And he did also, Isaac uh, saw uh, his chosen son in Jacob. And then God says to Jacob, that, this, this promise is going to come through you. You're, you're part of this chosen people. But he's doing this as well because he wants to show himself strong. God chooses the weakest of people to make a nation from. God chose people who, again, disqualified to become a mighty nation. He chooses them, why? Because he wants to demonstrate his power. His producing power and his keeping power. God wants to make himself known to the world through using weakness to show his strength. Verse 2. Lists all the names of the sons of Israel. Everyone, but we see at the end of verse 5, Joseph. Joseph, as the 12th son, is kept separate for a reason. The first thing God's going to do, listen, to show his keeping powers, he's going to go with them. He's going to go with them into Egypt when they go into Egypt. Remember, Exodus is about them coming out of Egypt, but even when they're going into it, God's with them. Listen to this, Genesis chapter 46, verses 2 to 4. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then he said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I will go with, down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now we'll talk about Joseph and his story in a second. But just know this. Know that there was this famine in the land all throughout the known world, you can read about this again in Genesis. You can read uh, about this whole thing in Genesis chapter 37 to chapter 50. You can look that up later. But, but there's this famine in the land, and 
Israel and his sons and their, those, his grandchildren, they're all in this place. They're going, how are we going to feed ourselves? Things are pretty desperate. And we're not sure if we should go down to Egypt because they're the superpowers. And we're not sure if we're going to go down there that we're going to either get absorbed into them or killed by them or we're not sure what's going to happen. And God says, no, go ahead and go there because I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be with you in this process. But I also want you to notice what it says. He says, I will go down with you to Egypt. And notice he says, I will also bring you up again. Isn't that interesting? What do you think about when you think going down and bringing up? Sounds a little bit like baptism. Sounds a little bit like death and burial and resurrection. And there's something here that God is wanting to, and we'll see this more as we go through Exodus, wanting to point forward to Jesus. That there's something about Jesus that ultimately fulfills God's chosen people. But he's going to go with them. God's going to be with them. His presence is a key part of the book of Exodus. But also, it notices, it says really clearly in the end of verse 5, but Joseph, this son, was already in Egypt. Now, you guys might know the story. Why was Joseph in Egypt? Again, chapters 37 to 50, you can read it yourselves. It's a great story. Joseph was the youngest son. He was the favored son. Uh, uh, his, his father Jacob had given him this coat of many colors. And he walked around with his brothers thinking, like, look at me, I look better than you. And they got sick of him being cocky. And so what they did is they basically, they wanted to kill him. They thought, no, that's a bit too harsh. So instead, let's just beat him up and sell him as a slave. And so they do. They sell Joseph as a slave to, to, to Egypt. He gets, ends up being a slave in Egypt. And when Joseph is a slave in Egypt, you know what ends up happening? He has these special dreams. At first, they just get him into trouble. But eventually, those dreams lead him to a place where he becomes second in command of all of Egypt next to Pharaoh himself. An amazing thing. And, and God uses him. God shows him that Pharaoh has these dreams and God gives Joseph these interpretation of dreams to show him that there's going to be a really bad famine, the famine that we just referenced before. And that famine is going to be so bad, there'll be seven years of plenty, but there'll be seven years of famine. That, that The famine will be so severe, it'll eat up all of the plenty. And so Joseph, in giving the interpretation of this dream to Pharaoh, says, okay, let's do this plan, and sets up a plan so they store up enough grain to not just to feed Egypt, but anybody who comes to them. And what happens? Listen to this. Joseph's brothers go to them for, for, uh, to, get, to get grain, and he kind of tricks them into things because he wants to reveal himself to them. Joseph, who is the rejected son by his brothers, is raised up to a place to rule, and he's wanting to test his brothers to see, are they actually going to change? And so when the test comes to pass, and they're humbled by the process, what happens? Verse 50, verse, or Genesis chapter 50, verse 18 to 21, listen to this. Joseph's brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Because, of course, they're afraid because they sold him to slavery, right? And now he's so powerful. But Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. See, when God says to Jacob, who at the point that we read earlier in Genesis 46, when God says that to Jacob, Jacob thinks his son's dead. 
But actually, when God said, I'm going to be with you, God's already been preparing how he was going to save his people in Egypt for year upon year upon year. Why is this important? Because when we're talking about Exodus, we are talking about seeing a people chosen by God. They didn't choose God first. God chose them first. He chose them. He built them. He delivers them. He redeems them. And their story is our story. It's what God does with us. God chases us down. God gets our attention. I know me, for, for in, in my case, when I was 18 or 17, 18, and asking these big kind of philosophical questions about life and feeling that kind of all the things I was doing as a typical 18-year-old were just fruitless and vain, and what was the point? Asking these really big questions of life. But resisting anything that had to do with God. God got my attention in such a powerful way that I knew that the, 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 the frustration and the guilt in my life was based on me pushing away this God. No one's even witnessing to me. No one's even telling me about Jesus. But God's chasing me down. It brought me to a place where someone shares Jesus with me, and I go, he's who I need. It wasn't me saying, I want to know what God's like. It was God saying, I want him for my own. That's our story. That's the story of Israel. A people chosen by God. Now, look at verse 6. In verse 6, it says this. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in and that generation. Now, this is important. Because we, we mentioned earlier, didn't we, that God makes this promise to Abram. Hey, you're going to be this mighty nation. And he makes that promise like five times in the book of Genesis, right? But what happens? This, this, he, he, he dies. His son Isaac kind of keeps going. Then uh, Isaac dies. Jacob kind of keeps going. Jacob has his family. They end up going into Israel. And basically, by the time uh, they all die, they still don't have their own land. They, they're still not necessarily a nation. Big family, but not necessarily their own nation immediately. And here's what's interesting, because Exodus is not just about a people that God has chosen. It's also about a promise beginning to unfold. And the promises that God made to Abraham that are meant to bless the whole world are beginning to be unfolded in the book of Exodus. And here's what's amazing to me, encouraging to me, really. It's a promise, listen, that is not dependent upon that certain generation. This really encourages me. Because, you know, since, since I became a Christian in 1987, I've longed to see God do something radical. Now, I have to say, I've seen some pretty cool things uh, since I've been in ministry. I've seen God do some pretty, pretty amazing things. And I'm so thankful for those things. But I've, well, like Bono, I'm still waiting. I still haven't seen what I'm looking for. <laughs> I'm still waiting to see God do something grand. And sometimes I get frustrated with my generation. People like me are a little bit older than me, especially in America. Because, man, they, these Christians, they are so focused on things that don't matter, like politics. And not focused on Jesus. I think, Lord, are you going to do it? And I'll be honest, sometimes I look at the younger generation. People like my kids' age, and I'm going, do they have a clue what's going to have to happen if, if they're going to see revival come in their time? Do they even know what revival is? And I think, gosh, our generation maybe already messed it up. Is this next generation going to even miss it or even under, know what to look for, even pray for? 
And I think, gosh, Lord, how is this going to happen? Because if I look at these generations, I think it ain't going to happen. But this is the whole point. The promise isn't based on, isn't dependent upon any specific generation. The promise is based on the God who does it. It's the God who does it. The movement that we've been a, a part of for years, this movement at Calvary Chapel, lots of its own problems, no doubt about that. But one of the cool things that happened with this movement was it was birthed out of what I think was a revival in the 60s and 70s. Where all of the Western culture was going, that's it, it's over. Christians in the West were thinking, there's no hope for this generation. They just want to have free sex, and they want to just do lots of drugs, and they're just kind of into weird Eastern religions. There's no way this is going to happen. And one of the epicenters of that was Southern California, where I grew up. So my parents were a bit older when they had me, so they weren't hippies. But man, a lot of my peers, their parents were hippies. Sarah's parents were hippies. And we, we kind of saw this generation, and they were broken, and I didn't know... I can, I, I can count on one hand how many of my friends had parents who were still married. Everybody was divorced. And they had written off this generation of hippies. They were just so broken. But you know what ended up happening? A bunch of these hippies, literally thousands of these hippies, became Christians. At the, at the, at the church, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, that kind of was the birthplace of, of, of 1,700 churches worldwide, they are at one point, listen, baptizing 1,000 people a month. Who are they baptizing? Hippies. Dirty, stinky, <laughs> drug-taking, free love going, hippies. I'll, t I'll tell you one story that kind of illustrates how, how gnarly things were back then. This is way before my time, by the way, just to be clear. I'm not that old. But one of the things that would happen was like, I heard the story of there was this whole commune, like a, a kind of a house that had like 40 hippies living in it. And they all decided to go to this church, this Calvary Chapel church, and they hear the gospel. And God like radically saves almost all of them. Like in other words, they all sit, make professions of faith. They all start coming to church. They all stop doing drugs. They kind of clean out their, their house. These are just like all these people cohabitating and stuff. And they're, they're, they're coming to, to church for months, and everyone can see the changes in them. They're getting jobs, and they're, they're, just, they're just cleaning up their lives. They're taking showers. Hippies didn't do that. It's gross, but they didn't. And they go to one of the pastors at Costa Mesa, and they say to him, hey, we're feeling convicted about some stuff. We've given up the drugs, and you know, we're, we're working, and we're so thankful for what God's doing, and we've even seen God do some miracles. And, but... We're, we're kind of feeling like, are, is it right for us to keep having group sex? Because we have these, these orgies, and we've always had these things. We're sure, should we give these up? I mean, that sounds shocking, isn't, doesn't it? But this is how, what kind of place they were in that God saved them out of them. And of course, they, when they lovingly said, no, you've got to repent of that. You can't do that anymore. Most of them said, okay, we repent. Some of them said, okay, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. But the point is, God can, listen, God can redeem any generation. He can keep his promise to any generation. You know why? Because the promise isn't dependent upon that generation. It's dependent upon him. It's a promise, though, especially in this case with Israel, it's a promise that came slowly but surely. Now, when we pick it up in Exodus, what we're seeing here, especially when we get uh, next week into verse 8, and forward, that they have been, this Israel's family, Jacob's family, have then been in 
Egypt. So when we pick it up in verse 8, it'll be just over 300 years. But this is what the scripture says. Listen, when God who promised Abram, I'm going to make you mighty nation, he also said this to Abram. Listen, Genesis 15. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Not the kind of promise that you put on like a card for graduation. You're going to be afflicted for 400 years. But what did God say to Abraham? Or I mean, sorry, what did he say to Jacob? Jacob, you know the promises I made to your father and grandfather. I'm going to be with you in Egypt during the full 400 years. I'm going to be building you. Isn't that what's happening in verse 7? Right? But the, even though Joseph's died, the generations died, but what does it say? The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. God has taken a family and growing them into a nation. And this is important. It's important because it has application for us. This country, it's going to sound funny coming with my accent, but let me just be honest. This country is not any of our home. It's not just, it's soon going to be my official home because we're soon going to be British citizens, but th this is not my home and it's not your home. America is not my home. Wherever you came from or your parents came from is not your home. If you're a Jesus follower, if you're in the covenant people of God, your home is with him forever. You are just passing through. You are just on your way to the promised land. And you might feel like right now, you might feel like, well, I feel like that. I feel like I'm enslaved. But sometimes in that season of feeling like, man, I'm stuck where I don't want to be, that's where God is growing you. He's growing you. See, he's made a promise to his people. And that promise comes slowly, but surely. So, what do we got to look forward to in Exodus? Exodus kind of basically is really about God, a God who's willing to make himself known. It's, it's not just about a people that are chosen or a promise beginning to unfold. It's about a God who's willing to make himself known. God wants us to know him. And it kind of breaks down in three sections. And all these sections end up pointing back to this idea of redemption. First, in chapters 1 to 18, we're going to see rescue. We're going to see that he's a God who liberates his people. This will be as they come out of Egypt, as they begin their, their, their way to Mount Sinai, where they get the law. That whole process, this first 18 chapters, is about rescue, how God liberates his people. And we're going to learn about the liberation God wants to bring us into. From verses or chapters 19 to 24, we see all the law coming on Mount Sinai. And sometimes we'll look at some of the laws and go, these are kind of funky, what's the deal with this? But the point will be that this is God bringing revelation. God communicates with his people. At, a, at the men's barbecue yesterday, we were talking about hearing from God. We were talking about having time alone with God and how do we hear from God. And a couple of the brothers go, I don't think I've ever heard from God. Man, listen, if you've read God's word, you've heard from God. Oh, but I've never heard him out loud. Read it out loud. You'll hear from God. Now, I, I do believe God speaks to us by his spirit to our spirit. I do believe God leads us specifically as well. 
But the only reason we recognize God's voice is because of what God says in his word. See, God does speak to us. We have a God who communicates. We don't worship a God of our imagination so that the only thing that we think we might hear is what we think we might hear in our brain. We have a God who has communicated so we can recognize his voice. We're going to see that as we look at the law. We're going to see that revelation. The last section, chapters 25 to 40, is about relationship. Because this is what God made us for. Our God, who is a relational God, didn't need us. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't bored. But God, who is love, Father, Son, and Spirit, wanted to pour that out on another. So he creates a universe, and in that universe, he creates us. That we can know him. And those chapters, chapters 24 to 40, are marked by a God who is present with his people. Listen, God is with us right now. He's with us always. We'll talk about maybe why sometimes we don't experience that as we should, but he can. He's with us always. This is what Exodus is going to be about, a God willing to make himself known. See, rescue, revelation, relationship, all those things are about redemption. We're redeemed. We're bought back. We're rescued from our bondage to sin. Revelation. God speaks to us. The Bible says of Jesus, he's the word of God. He's the word of God. Relationship. What do we see about Jesus? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son and God the Father send God the Spirit so that we have God dwelling in us if we're Jesus followers. He dwells in us. This is what we have. Rescue, revelation, relationship. This is what redemption is. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19 says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you, uh, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from, our from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We're going to see Jesus as we look through Exodus. We're going to know our Redeemer. I'm going to pray as these guys make their way forward. Father, I thank you that you love us and that nothing can separate us from your love that's in Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would know you as our Redeemer. We would see our great need for redemption. Lord, that we would understand the great cost of our redemption. And that, Lord, we would, oh, Lord, learn to rejoice in an amazing eternal value of our redemption. And Father, as we get ready to remember what Jesus has done, as we jump all the way up to the New Testament and looking past the cross, past the resurrection, uh, even past the ascension, longing for your return, Lord, we want to remember and proclaim the sufficiency of Christ's death. We pray it in Jesus' name.